you can grab a seat uh, and good morning. Uh, so glad to be back. So glad that you guys are back from the break. Glad that you survived the break, first and foremost. Uh, who went the farthest? We are, we're a smaller crowd this morning, so let's play this game. Who thinks they went the absolute farthest away from College Station, Texas? Where'd you go? Canada. Canada. Bold. All right. <laughs> Can anyone beat Canada? Mm, nope. Okay, good job. You win. I will give you a bottle of syrup as your prize. Uh, we... Man, we are so glad, uh, so glad, or I'm so glad that we are back together. Um, hopefully you had a great break. Uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, I want to be one of the first to welcome you here to Grace Bible Church, here to Grace College. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I'm our uh, teaching director here at our Anderson campus for our college uh, worship thing, where we're at right now. Uh, I am super excited to start off the new semester. I hope that your break was wonderful. I hope it was filled with figgy pudding and eggnog and wassail or whatever you do during your break. Uh, Mine, I had kind of the classic Christmas break uh, where you have like a baby. And so uh, I I know she picked out that jacket and everything. She's got great taste. Uh, But she, uh, this is my new daughter. Her name is Charlotte and she was a month old yesterday. Uh, And so she is what I did all break. Uh, it's a lot of work being a dad, apparently. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, but, uh, but man, that, that's what I did all break. I don't know if you had a baby. Uh, if so, that's great. Uh, weird timing, but that's great. Uh, all the same. Uh, and hopefully, all of us together, hopefully, we all had a break that was better uh, than this guy's. We have a push-up contest. Okay, boy, I have a challenge on a push-up contest. <laughs> Where's the prize at? Someone say go when you're ready. Ready? Okay. Ready? Go! One, two, three. Boy, hurry up for Scott. He looks like he's struggling. Of course he needs a hand. So I don't know what you did over your break. Hopefully you weren't foolish enough to challenge Gaston to a push-up contest. Because you should know no one fights like Gaston or does push-ups like Gaston. Uh, But the reality, man, the reality is that maybe we saw over the break, we've definitely seen at some point in our past that we do uh, fail at points, right? Just like that guy failed against Gaston in the contest. I mean, we we fail. We, We fail at being good enough for certain things, for certain requirements, for certain competitions. Uh, We find ourselves at a point many times where we just don't live up to the expectation or the standard. And when we do that, man, it can be humiliating. We could fall on our face in front of everyone at Disney World, I'm assuming, was gathered around. Uh, Sometimes that that moment can not only affect us, though, many times that, that failure spreads into other areas of our life. Many times that failure can affect the relationships that we have. Many times that failure can even destroy a relationship. Many of us have probably had a friendship that ended because we weren't able to meet certain needs or because we weren't able to do certain stuff or live up to certain expectations. Many of us have had a dating relationship that fell apart. Why? Because we weren't good enough. That person broke up with us, that guy, that girl, or we broke up with them. Why? Because one of those sides just wasn't good enough. Many of us maybe even had a break that was okay, but, but was slightly marred by the fact that we have a parent 
or maybe just another family member who doesn't seem to quite respect us, doesn't quite love us the way that we wish they would because we just don't meet their expectation, because we aren't good enough. Man, we are surrounded by relationships that depend on us being good enough. And so we as believers then assume that our relationship with God works the exact same way. We assume that there must be something that I have to do to make sure that God loves me. I have to live a certain way, uh, or I have to read my Bible, I have to pray these things, or I have to go on that mission trip, or I have to serve in my church, and I have to join this organization so that God will love me the way that I want him to love me. Because if I don't do these things, maybe that means that uh, he will abandon me. If I don't live in this certain way, or if I don't stop living that way, maybe it means that not that God will abandon me, abandoned me, but maybe it means that I was never really his to begin with. We often think that there is something that I have to do to, to keep my salvation or, or justify my salvation, to keep that love or, or justify that love. And so what happens when I'm not good enough? What do we do? What if we fail to meet that expectation? What if we're not good enough for the Lord? This whole semester, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be walking through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And what we're going to find as we walk through this book is that that idea of being good enough is so amazingly flawed. Sometimes people use passages from Hebrews to say that, no, you have to be good enough, you have to do certain things. And hear me right now that that is so misguided. That is a complete misinterpretation of our scripture. When we go through Hebrews, we see something completely different. You see, our world around us, man, they're telling us that we deserve the best, right? They they always say, like, you deserve the best. And so we want to be the best, or we want to know what's best. But the reality is that what Hebrews tells us is that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, Jesus is always better. Jesus is better. And so we're studying the book of Hebrews to understand who Jesus is, and what he's done on our behalf. This morning, uh, we're not necessarily jumping straight into the book, though, right? This morning and then next week, uh, we're actually spending a little bit of time just sort of introducing the main ideas and themes from the book. Because Hebrews can be a little intimidating, right? There are passages in Hebrews uh, that are very much debated, for good reason. They're very difficult passages. And so because of that, we're not going to just jump straight in. Instead, we're going to kind of wade into that pool, Right? We're going to kind of outline some of the main ideas that we see throughout the book. And one of the ways that we're going to do that, or specifically this morning, the way we're going to do that, is we're going to look at the life of a guy named Isaac. Because the book of Hebrews, one of the things I love about it is that it continually uses, it constantly uses historical figures to make certain points. Right? It brings up certain men or women from our history, from our scripture. And the book of Hebrews uses those people to make different points about salvation or about Christ or about whoever. And so suddenly when we look in Hebrews, we see Isaac mentioned. And what I love about Isaac is he is the most perfect illustration of one of the major themes of all of our scripture. One of the major themes of the book of Hebrews in particular. The theme, the idea that God doesn't love you because you're good. But God loves you because he's good. 
we see that in Isaac so incredibly clearly. That God's love for you is not based on your performance, but it's based on your position that you obtain through faith in Jesus Christ. What we see is that Jesus is better than Isaac, which is really good because Isaac is terrible. Uh, one of the things that we see when we look at Isaac, when we read stories about Isaac, uh, is first and foremost that he's never really the main character. Generally, whenever he pops up, it's because he's the supporting actor in someone else's story, right? It's Abraham doing something crazy, and oh yeah, and Isaac was kind of there because Abraham was trying to murder him or whatever. You know, like that, that's the thing. Or maybe sometimes it's about Jacob and Esau and these things that they're doing, and oh, I guess Isaac was there because uh, whatever, he's their dad. And suddenly... Isaac, we often find, is just sort of the supporting actor. He's that uh, person in the romantic comedy. He's just like the sassy friend, right? He's not the girl that falls in love with the guy, but he's the sassy friend who's like two lines are like, oh, don't do that. And then, oh, you did that right at the very end. Like that's, that's what he is. He pops into the scene, says one thing, and he's done. That's who Isaac is until we reach Genesis chapter 26. If you have your Bible, if there's a Bible around you that you want to turn to Genesis chapter 26, type it into your phone. That's where we're going to be primarily this morning. Because Genesis chapter 26 is Isaac's one time to shine. Genesis chapter 26 is the one chapter in all of Scripture, the one time in all of Scripture that Isaac finally gets to be the leading actor. He finally gets to be the main character in the story. And it starts off on a great note. Man, Genesis chapter 26 kicks off verse 3 with a great moment where God is speaking to Isaac and he tells him, Sojourn in this land, Isaac, and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Okay, so there's a famine in the place where Isaac is. And so God's telling him, I want you to move. I want you to go over to this area instead. And if you go there, I'm going to be with you. Isaac, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to establish this oath that I swore to Abraham. He says, I'm going to reinforce that Abrahamic covenant, which was that I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. What we see is Genesis chapter 26 starting off on a great moment. We're, we're establishing the story, establishing the character of Isaac, and we should be pumped because we see this Abrahamic covenant reiterated. Land seed blessing. Okay, that's how you remember the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this seed, this offspring, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. He says, Isaac, I'm going to do that with you. And so we're excited, man. We're pumped up. We're like, oh yeah, it's Isaac time, right? Because Abraham was really great. But Isaac, man, he's like the sequel. Abraham with a vengeance, right? Like we're, we're pumped. We're ready to see what Isaac can do because he was already pretty cool as a kid, right? His dad was going to sacrifice him to God. And Isaac was like, all right, that's cool. And so we were like, oh man, like this kid's legit. I can't wait to see what he does as an adult. And so God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to reinforce this covenant. I'm going to make all these promises. Isaac, this is what I want you to do for me. This is what I'm going to do for you. Man, we're so pumped which is why I love in the very next verse, immediately we see Isaac fail. He settles in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, oh, she's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. 
immediately, immediately, the very next verse, we see in Isaac a complete lack of faith in God. We see Isaac confronted with these guys who are like, hey, who's that girl? He's like, uh, my sister, right? Which he's scared that she's too beautiful, right? Which that would make an awesome Hallmark card. Girl, you're so beautiful, you dangerous, right? Like, that's awesome. You're like, oh, okay. I'll play that game. I'll buy that card, right? And we, we like that. Uh, but the problem is that he is lying because he doesn't trust that God's going to take care of him because he doesn't think that God is really in control. And so he completely lies. He displays an incredible lack of faith in the Lord. And it's so sad. It's so incredibly tragic because Isaac winds up displaying less faith than these heathens and these Philistines around him. Because immediately after he lies, we see that when there had been a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, well, because I thought lest I die because of her. Right now that must've been some laugh to indicate that they were married. I don't know how that works, but Abimelech sees somehow in that laughing and maybe hand patting and, you know, I don't know. He sees in that moment though, that Isaac had been lying. He sees that Isaac's sister was really his wife. And now this makes an incredible impact on King Abimelech because he is more than likely the son of a guy whose name was also Abimelech, who was the king before him, who had an encounter with Abraham, Isaac's father, where they, Abraham was walking through his lands and that king said, hey, who's this lady? And Abraham said, oh, this is my sister. Exact same situation. And so because of that, the king Abimelech, the senior, said, oh, okay, cool. Well, she's mine now because... That's what they did. All right. So he says, so he takes uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, and brings her into his household. And all of a sudden his whole household was cursed. We find out that God punished severely the Philistines at that time until eventually they were like, oh my gosh, it's not his sister. It's his wife. And so they give her back. And Abraham's like, all right, thanks. Sorry about that. And so they, and they move on. But I guarantee you that his son, this King Abimelech has heard that story. He knows what's up. And so he says, why in the world would you tell us that? He says, what is this that you have done to us? He says, one of my people, one of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. King Abimelech of the Philistines a heathen, someone who worshiped false gods, false idols. This man shows more trust, more faith in the one true Lord than Isaac does. He says, if you, if we wrong this guy, I know that his God is so powerful. I know his God is so real that a curse will be brought upon us, that guilt will be laid upon us. He says, so no one go near him, right? It looks like his sister, but it's not. It's a trap, right? That's what he says. So he's suddenly displaying, man, that Isaac, he, he failed so horribly. Isaac just messed up big time. And so we see this occur, man. We, we know kind of how that goes, right? We've seen disobedience in our scripture. We've seen disobedience in our own lives. And now we assume that God's going to have to bring the hammer, right? That's what we always jump to because Isaac just messed up so bad. 
that God surely, surely God is going to uh, punish him in some way or test him in some way, right? Something has to happen for Isaac to prove that he belongs in God's family, to either keep that position in God's family or prove that there's a reason for him being in God's family, which is why it's so incredibly confusing when we look a few verses later and we see that Isaac sowed in that land and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold, that the Lord blessed him and that Isaac became rich and he gained more and more and more and more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. If we kept reading, we would see the Philistines become so envious of Isaac that they grow to hate him and resent him to the point where they tell him, you need to leave. Like, I just can't, I, I just can't even. You need to go. That's what the Philistines say. And so Isaac, he's like, oh, okay. So he picks up and he moves. He leaves the land that God told him to stay in. We see yet another unfaithful act on Isaac's part because the Philistines around him are so jealous. They're so envious of what he has that they chase him out of town. And so suddenly we see Isaac fail again, but yet in the midst of that second failure, he's blessed. So blessed with material wealth, with with flocks and herds and servants that he sows and he reaps a hundredfold. In the midst of his unfaithfulness, we see God give him such incredible material blessing, which seems so misguided. It seems wrong. It seems like God's reinforcing the wrong message, right? It sounds, it seems like God's being a bad parent, honestly, I have a nephew named Forrest who's a year old and he's currently in a phase uh, where he loves his mom so much. He is such a mama's boy that he tries to eat her shoulder every chance he gets, right? So if he's up on her shoulder uh, and he's just kind of chilling, he'll just, he's got like five teeth now or something and he'll just, and just clamp down on her shoulder. Loves to just bite her shoulder like Laffy Taffy, okay? And so he's just going to town every single time. Every single time he tries to bite my sister's shoulder, what does she do? She, she tells him no, right? She says, stop it, right? Her and her husband, they're united. They're great parents and they discipline him. They say, no, force, do not bite, right? Don't, don't do that. Tell him no. And then they bite his shoulder, right? <laughs> not really. That would be effective though, I'm just saying. But they tell him, no, you need to stop that. Why? Because that's a bad behavior. You don't want Forrest to go to school in three years and have a friend that he really likes. And, oh, you're my best friend. Arr, and then just like go for his neck or something like that's, you don't want that to happen. And so they are disciplining Forrest. When he does something wrong, they discipline him. That's the way a good parent acts. The Lord himself tells us that a loving father will discipline his children. And so why, why, why is he blessing Isaac? Why is he giving him good things in the midst of Isaac's unfaithfulness? What if my sister and her husband gave Forrest a cupcake every single time he bit her shoulder? That wouldn't make any sense. And he would be very large. (laughs) Why is God doing this? Is God just reinforcing bad behavior? Why is he doing this? And we see a few verses later in verse 27, the explanation. And I love this. Chapter 26, verse 27, suddenly we see that Isaac is speaking to the Philistines again and he tells them, why have you come to me? Seeing that you hate me, you've sent me away from you. And they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. 
So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you, Isaac, and us, the Philistines. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing, done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Philistines say, Isaac, we recognize in this moment that you are now the blessed of the Lord. Suddenly we realize that there's a bigger game. Man, there's a bigger picture. There's more going on than just the obedience or disobedience of Isaac. Suddenly in this moment, we realize that God had a bigger plan, that he continually blessed Isaac and poured out this blessing, even in his disobedience. Why? Because ultimately it brought the Lord more glory. Because ultimately people were able to look at the broken life of Isaac. They looked at the failures of Isaac. And in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of that failure, in the midst of that unfaithfulness, they see a faithful God who is good. A God who loved Isaac, not because he was good enough, but a God who loved Isaac because God himself is good. They suddenly realize in this moment that God is with this man God didn't love Isaac based on his performance. He loved Isaac based on his position as God's chosen representative. And what we find in Hebrews chapter 11, when Isaac gets a shout out along with a lot of other figures from our scripture, what we see in Hebrews is that Isaac never did anything to earn that position. Hebrews 11 is abundantly abundantly clear that Isaac never earned that position, but it was given to him by grace through faith in God's person and in God's promises. And that should encourage us. That should reinforce the idea in our lives that, man, we, we do not experience God's love. We do not receive God's love because we're good. We experience God's love because he is good. Because Ephesians 2, chapters like Ephesians 2 are abundantly clear that we cannot earn our position as child of the Lord Most High. I can do nothing to earn that, but it is given to me by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the only way that I can experience that love from the Lord. It's the only way that I I gain it. It's the only way that I keep it. It's the only way that, that I can remain rooted in it is because God is better than I am. Because Jesus is better. He's better than Isaac. He's better than me. He's better than my failures. God doesn't love me on my, based on my performance, but on my position. But unfortunately, man, we just can't quite get that in our heads. There's something deep within us that pushes us and nags at us and motivates us to try to do something to keep that love. Man, there's something within us that drives us to try and justify that love that God gives us. There's something within us that just resists the idea that it could truly be a free gift by grace through faith. Something within us just fights against against that and we want to do something to keep that love. Man, we can't wrap our minds around the idea Uh, as one pastor put it, that we have a God who cannot love us more and will not love us less. An unconditional love. We just can't quite get it. 
we can't quite wrap our minds around, around Romans 3 where Paul is speaking and he's using the Israelites as an example. The, the sum right there, those are the historical uh, Hebrew fathers like Abraham and Isaac. Paul says, what if some, what if Isaac was unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, by no means. Literally in the Greek right there, he says, no, no, twice. That's how you know he's serious. No, no. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He says, what if? And Paul knows that they, were, that they were unfaithful, obviously. It's rhetorical. He says, what if they were unfaithful? What if they failed in that push-up contest against Gaston? What if? Does that somehow nullify the faithfulness of God? Does that somehow negate the Lord's goodness? He says, no. He says, no, no. No, the Lord is faithful to the unfaithful. That's what makes him so amazing. This is so much more impressive than if Paul said, yes, the Lord is faithful to those who earn it. Right? That doesn't reflect well on the Lord. That doesn't reflect well on us. If I told my wife, I love you, and I try to, right? I try to tell her every day that I love my wife. I try to tell Susan that I love you every single day. And that's it. That's, that's the statement, right? I love you. What if I told her, I mean, I love you as long as you uh, pick up those clothes from the dry cleaner, take my car to get an oil change, and could you go ahead and build a headboard for our guest bed? Right? If I I put those qualifications, if I put those conditions on my love, I mean, that'd be terrible. You would look at me and be like, you are unfit to be anything. Right? Like, you you would be very disappointed in me. You say, why are you doing that? Why? Because, because suddenly I would be showing that my love is based on a performance, but, but that's not the way it should be. My love for my wife is not based on her performance. It is based upon her position as my wife. That's what my love is born out of. Now, she's done all those things, right? She's picked up my clothes before and she's taken cars to the oil change and she's built a headboard with her own delicate hands, right? She built it. And it's amazing, And she did those things not out of a desire to earn my love or keep my love. She did it out of a a love for me. Not out of fear, but out of selflessness. What if she was doing them because she was afraid that if she didn't do those things, our relationship would end? I mean, how would that reflect on her? How would that reflect on me? Jesus tells us in John 14 that those who love him will obey him will keep his commandments, will keep his words. Christ is saying, I want you to obey out of love, not out of a fear that if you don't do certain things, you're going to lose my love. Because that's selfish, right? That's an inward focus. He says, I want you to obey not as a requirement, but I want you to obey as a response to this love from a God who loved you first, from a God who's going to be faithful to you no matter what. And in light of that love, in light of that grace, in light of that faithfulness, it should inspire us and motivate us. And we should respond with obedience and with love, with gratitude. We should look upwards and outwards, not inwards. It's misguided. 
But something within us, man, it tells us that I've got to do something to keep God's love, or maybe I have to do something to justify it, right? Maybe it's not that I can lose the love or I can lose my salvation, but maybe it's that if I don't live in a certain way or if I don't stop living in that certain way, God was never truly my father. I was never truly saved to begin with. There's something within us that, that pulls us towards that mindset. And I'm telling you, man, that is so misguided. And we can just look a little bit further in Romans 3. We can see that Paul is addressing that exact mindset. And he says, what becomes of our boasting? He says it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? But no, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. He says, you never did anything to gain your salvation in the first place. There was no work that saved you to begin with. So why in the world do you think that they are worth boasting in later on? Why do you think that there's some work that you can do, something you can say, some mission trip you can go on that will prove or justify your salvation, God's love? That doesn't make any sense. Because it was never your works. It was always faith. It was always that position you were given, not the performance that you achieved. My one-month-old daughter, Charlotte, man, she does not like to sleep sometimes, right? Who can blame her? There's a lot of fun stuff out in the world. And so sometimes the rest of the family wants to sleep. And she does not want to sleep. But sometimes she does sleep, right? Every once in a while, like last night in particular, she slept for six hours, almost, in a row. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right now you're like, it's not, just give me my little victories. Almost six hours. And when she does that, it's not like she can then take that action. She can't just take that sleep, that situation, and then say, see, this is why he loves me. Right? This, this is why my parents love me, because I slept almost six hours. That's, that's insane. That doesn't work. First and foremost, because she only did it once, okay, so don't get big, right? <laughs> but second of all, it's never, it was never her ability to sleep that, that gained my love in the first place. It was never her ability to sleep or, or be quiet or whatever it is or smile. None of that was what earned her love to begin with. So why would we think that that would somehow keep the love? If she sleeps that much, I love her more. That's for sure. But I don't love her based on that. My love for her is born out of the fact that she's my daughter. Her position as one of my family members is is my daughter. That's where that love comes from. It doesn't matter what she does later on. She doesn't have to do anything to prove that love or justify that love. Man, but that's what we do, man. We try, to, we try to check off these lists. We try to look in at ourselves and think like, okay, what am I doing? Like, am I showing enough fruit? Am I doing the right things? And we do it in a way, a selfish way to prove our salvation. But hear me when I tell you that that is so off the mark. That it's good. It is good to check yourself. It is good to look inward sometimes, but not to selfishly prove your salvation. Instead, you're looking in to check to make sure that you are following the Lord's plan because it's what's best. Because his calling, his, his uh, instructions, they're always best for ourselves and for the people around us. If we follow the Lord, man, we are going to be a blessing to all the nations, just like Isaac. 
we see in our scripture that, man, we are never saved by works. So we don't need him to keep that salvation. We don't need him to, to, to justify it. The reality is that Isaac failed just like we all have failed and just as we all will continue to fail. But yet in the midst of that failure, Jesus Christ was faithful. What we see in Hebrews, what we see in all of scripture is that Jesus is faithful to the faithless. That Jesus Christ succeeds where we completely mess it up. We see that Jesus is better than Isaac. He's better than you. He's better than me. And this knowledge, the knowledge of this love and this grace, that should fill us with such a love for the Lord and for his people. When we realize that, that position, when we realize what God has given us, oh my gosh, that should motivate us. That should push us to start this semester, this spring semester. We should start off speaking and showing grace, showing that love to the people around us. I would challenge you, man, this semester, try to share the gospel with someone. If you truly believe that you are a sinner and that you could do nothing to change that fact, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ was God made man who lived and died and rose again for you so that you could be forgiven, if you believe that, how could you not share that with the people around you? How could you not throw them that one true lifeline in the midst of the lies and deceptions of our world. Who's that person in in your class, in your house? Who's that roommate? Who's that person that's going to be here in this room next week? This week, man, this morning, we're we're low because this is is always a low week. People are still not back, all that stuff. I'll tell you right now, historically, next week is going to be our biggest Sunday, attendance-wise, of basically the entire year. This room's going to be packed the heck out. And there are going to be a lot of new faces. There's going to be a lot of people. And I can't talk to all of them. And our interns can't talk to all of them. And our leaders even can't talk to all of them. But you can talk to all of them. You can make that connection and you could share that gospel with someone. You could just be loving towards them or gracious towards them. You could start a conversation. You could offer to get coffee later in the week. Knowing the love and grace and faithfulness of our God should motivate us, should make us respond with that same love and grace and faithfulness to the people around us. And so let's do that. Can you imagine if every person in this room right now, I mean, we're low, but we're not super low. If every single person in this room right now made a point next week to set up just like a coffee or a lunch with one person they don't know, one person that they either meet in class over the course of the week or one person that they meet here in this room in a week. If we all did that, can you imagine the impact that that would have? If we did that week in, week out, can you imagine how many people we could reach? So let's do it. Let's make this semester not about just ourselves showing up and trying to learn and grow to make ourselves feel better or be better. Let's make this semester about showing up to love our God and love his people. Let's make this semester about recognizing the truth of Hebrews that Jesus is better than anything we have to offer. So as we sing a few more songs, as we worship just a little bit more, I would encourage you to let us know if there's anything we can be praying for this semester. We're going to have some leaders and interns scattered throughout the back of the room 
man, we're going to be praying for your semester. We're going to be praying for those classes you're about to walk into. We're going to be praying for those relationships in your house that you're about to walk into. We're going to be praying uh, for the stuff that you dealt with with your family over the break. We're going to be praying for you, but let us know if there's something specific. Come back, talk to us. If you have questions, come talk to us, please. We want to talk to you. Let us know if there's something that we can do or say or pray to serve you better. So let's go before the Lord right now. God, we thank you first and foremost for your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that he is truly better than anything that we can achieve or accomplish. God, we thank you that our salvation is not contingent upon our ability to succeed because God, we know we will fail. God, we thank you for books like Hebrews, for lives of men and women like Isaac, that illustrate, that show us that beautiful truth that we are saved by faith, that we are saved and loved because of our position, not because of our performance, not because we are good, but God, because you are good. If you would, take a moment right now and ask the Lord to to reveal in your mind, in your heart, ask him to show you right now, where are you denying his goodness? Where are you trying to make it on your own? Where are you trying to please him or please others? Ask the Lord to reveal to you right now, where are you selfishly inward focused, trying to prove yourself? Ask him to show that to you. If you would, take a moment right now. Ask the Lord to open up an opportunity in the next week, in the next seven days. Ask God to help open your eyes, to help move your feet to a place where you meet that person that needs to see his love, where you speak to that person. Maybe you don't share the gospel straight up this week, but maybe you just become a friend to them. Ask the Lord to show you who can you be gracious towards? Who can you show love towards in light of the love and grace that God has given you? Ask him that right now.